0: Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong, but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard We may not all live, farm, ranch, or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women, and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today, you'll meet Anna Bowen. Anna is a dairy farmer farm business consultant, and freelance writer living in West Wales, United Kingdom. She and her partner are in contract farming agreements milking 300 spring calving dairy cows managed on a grass-based system. Anna's off-farm work focuses on low-input dairy farms, but also covers other dairy systems, beef, sheep, and soil science. She writes for the Farming and Rural Press and on her own website. In 2020, Anna was awarded the Nuffield Farming Scholarship to research how the dairy industry can rear calves in a more ethical way, looking at the best ways to use sexed semen and breed dairy beef and the feasibility of keeping cows and calves together. Her scholarship also looked at lessons the dairy farming industry can learn from horse racing about social license. I am very excited for you to meet Anna, and Anna is my first UK farmer on the podcast. So I was very excited to chat with her, obviously for all of the work that she does, but because we are adding another pin in the map for the Rural Women podcast. Before we get to Anna's interview, I just want to say a warm hello and welcome to our newest member on Patreon, Irene H. Thank you so much for joining the other patrons in supporting the Rural Woman podcast through Patreon. Your financial support keeps these amazing stories from these amazing women coming through your earbuds. And if you are listening to this and would like to support the show in any monetary way that you can, head on over to Patreon. The link is in today's show notes, and you can join in supporting the stories of women in agriculture being shared through the Rural Woman Podcast. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Anna. Anna, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you today? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. I am so excited. you're joining me here on the podcast. Anna, I think, no, I know you are my first guest from across the pond here on the podcast. So I'm I'm very excited to have a fellow rural woman with the Americans think that we have an accent. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) For the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, Anna, tell us who you are where the heck you're from and how you got your start in agriculture. Hey, so
1: um, I'm Anna, Anna Bowen, and I live in Wales in the UK. So small it's a principality, it's part of the United Kingdom. So a lot of people around the world haven't heard of Wales, but it's a country to the west of England. There's about three million people living here and it's pretty rural. And I am a dairy farmer, but I'm also a farm business consultant and a freelance writer. And my start in agriculture, as was born into it, so my father and brother now run the family dairy farm, and that's been in the family for about 100 years, or well, at least the dairy herd has been, the farm's been been around for longer than that. So I grew up on a farm, so it's kind of around animals my whole life, and then I went to agricultural college, went across to England to the Royal Agricultural College in Sirencester and did a couple of degrees there. But I kind of started my professional work in agriculture then as a teenager. I went to work for a local farm business consultant. and um, started working with him when I was 14. So yeah, I've always kind of been around animals and then also around agriculture in
0: that professional sense as well. The history of your family farm just sounds so incredible to me and to know how much history and lineage there is. Do you know about the generations before you? Can you Share some stories or share some facts about your family farming uh, before your generation.
1: Yeah, so the first generation actually on the farm would have been my great great grandfather. But before that, the farm was owned by relatives, but not not Bowen. So I think it was the aunt, my great great grandfather's aunt, owned the farm. So at the time, it was there were a couple of farms that were all sort of owned together. They left it to my great great grandfather. And then he had, I think, nine children. So they actually split all the land and property between the nine children. And my great-grandfather got the home farm and the main house um, in the land parcel. He's a dairy farmer, but he got into pedigree Frisians. So in 1924, he set up his herd of pedigree Frisians. So it's one of the oldest herds in the UK. And he, my great-grandmother then was quite a bit younger than him, um, but he also died quite young. So she she managed the farm. After he died, um, I kind of ran it. Kept going with the pedigrees, which was something that he was really interested in, and raised my grandfather and my great aunt. And yeah, when my grandfather took over the farm. Then my brother did, so my father did, and now my brother is there as well. So they've gone like a lot of people in the UK. They've gone more down the Holstein route. So they've got pedigree Holstein Frisians now. They've got, they're milking about 120. They're on the same farm. They've taken on some extra land and they've obviously expanded and modernised. And My grandfather is still around. He lives on a cottage on the farm. So he and my grandmother still have a bit of an input as well. Uh, But they are, he's in his 80s and she's in her late 70s. So they are doing a bit less work now. And yeah, it's quite exciting. So my partner and I, we are in a contract farming agreement, which I, I can get onto later if you like, but we've, um, so we, we manage the farm. So it's spring block calving. So all the cows calve in 12 weeks from the 20th of February. Um, so we're a grass-based system for so cows graze for about nine or 10 months of the year, depending on the weather. And we've got sort of smaller cows with like higher milk solids, lower, lower litres and um, eat, eat a bit less food. But last year, my father and brother gave us a couple of cows. So, ones which had gone more Fregeny rather and Holsteiny, so didn't really fit their system. And this year, we had our first calf from one of those cows. So, we've now got two adult cows in our milking herd. And we've got a calf who's about a month old um, who's a registered pedigree with our prefix. So, it's quite exciting that we're starting our own herd using those same genetics that my great grandfather established 100 years ago.
0: Right. Yeah, that's incredible. And what was it about the pedigree and the genetics that really interested your family in continuing that? I'm not
1: really sure. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure why he went down that route. I know he was obviously really interested in it and traveled around the country buying cows and setting up for herd. And yeah, I think it suits their system to have pedigree Holsteins. Um, they're interested in it, interested in tracking cow families and sort of performance between cow families. And they do all the classification and lots of data recording so yeah they're really into that and it's something that I'd kind of really moved away from um, my line of work with extensive systems and low like low input systems really goes towards like crossing Crisians and jerseys and having like a crossbred animal so it's yeah I, it's, it's something what I'm what the line of farming that I'm in is very different to theirs but there's definitely lessons that I've learned from home that I've applied here and there's probably, I'd like to think there's some things that I've learned in my
0: career that helps them a bit as well. I, I can imagine for sure <laughs> with your extensive career. So talk to us more about, you know, growing up on the farm. Was it something that you knew that you wanted to stay in agriculture or was there something else that you were like, I think I would rather move away from and then it brought you back? Tell us the story of growing up there.
1: Yeah. So. I was with you know, The farm was always there and we were always kind of encouraged to help out. So feeding calves and moving stock and all that sort of thing. But I don't think I ever really um, anticipated that I'd have a career, at least in practical farming. It's definitely something that wasn't really pushed on me. I suppose I knew that the farm was only really big enough for one of us. So my brother was quite keen. So I never really questioned it, you know, that it would that he would be the one to succeed to it. And it's also the type of farming that was have got at home is what he's interested in and not necessarily what I'm interested in and school the school I went to is very academic and they were definitely saw agriculture as an industry where there weren't really options and prospects for people especially I think for girls so they weren't very happy when I did decide to go to agricultural college Whether or, did I think I'd have a part in the industry I guess maybe yes the answer because I was a teenager I I I thought I'd go to that school and that was definitely the the kind of path I was steer down at school. And I, I got into that school, I decided I decided not to go. But I think through working for the consultant, the work I was doing there was really interesting and it's a great opportunity to kind of to help people, but also to have like a rewarding career and use lots of different skill sets. So I went to agricultural college, but I did an integrated equine and agriculture degree because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And then I did a master's in sustainable agriculture and food security. And probably while I was doing that, I'd kind of decided to go down the agriculture route for work rather than the equine route, Um, because I thought there's probably better prospects to actually earn some money in agriculture and then spend it on horses. But yeah, practical farming, I never really thought, I guess, when I left university, some other people went and got work on farms. To be honest, looking back now I kind of regret that I didn't go work maybe on another farm for six months I think it would have been good uh, maybe done it overseas but I think if I'd gone and spoken to myself when I was 21 or 22 I probably would have said that I wasn't capable of of working on a farm I wouldn't have had the confidence in my own ability to do that practical work and it's just kind of a happy accident that I met my partner and he was already farming so I just kind of called on what I'd learned, what I'd learned and what i had been doing when I was younger and I've just got got into it now. But I don't think practical farming is a career I would have gone down on my own initiative.
0: Tell us more about your consulting work. Uh, You had mentioned you had started farm consulting when you were quite young. So what was it about consulting? What is what are you consulting on? All of the things farm consulting.
1: Yeah. So when I was about 14, so in the UK, we always, when you're about that kind of age, you go and do a week of work experience. And I think my initial work experience placement fell through. And a family friend was doing a couple of days a week work for this consultancy firm. And she said, Why don't you come with me for a week and spend some time with my boss on the days I don't work? So I went along there and kind of got, spent the week there. And on the back of it, they offered me a job on Saturdays. So I started off as doing um like inputting farm accounts into management software as doing risk maps for nutrient management plans. and my boss had free range chickens. so I'd also go out and collect eggs for like the conveyor belts on that. so we had six thousand hens back then. So I got into that and I think it was the type of farms we were working with was so positive and so progressive. They had really good businesses, like profitable businesses. They were environmentally sound. There were quite a few women who were sort of heads of holding, decision makers, doing a really good job of it. And they were in kind of discussion groups where they were sharing ideas and collaborating. And I was like, I really like this type of farming. But you could also see that the work you did made a difference. And as I got older, I suppose started working more in the school holidays and then being taught how to do like budgets and business plans. I worked it up so I did my six-month university work placement at that consultancy firm and I worked there for two years after I graduated and I now work for a different firm so it's a, a national firm whereas the one I worked for before was working just in West Wales but I'm still doing you know a lot of work that I did then and I'm, I'm still doing that sort of work now so I work predominantly with dairy farmers but also with beef and sheep farmers and i do budgets i do business plans i do kind of help farmers with strategic decisions i run farmer discussion groups and i'm also fact qualified um so a, it's a uk qualification that means that you can give advice on fertilizer applications and help with nutrient management plans so i do a lot of that work as well and yeah it's great thing like no no day is the same i get to work from home i get to go out and see farmers and i guess you see you see like the very best and the very like I wouldn't say the worst of industry, but you see people when they're in quite bad places. So I could be seeing somebody one day who is, you know, top 5% farmer who just wants, you know, to help with an application or just, you know, some to sound out an idea. And another day you might be called in by a bank manager to find out, you know, to get a rescue plan together basically for a farmer who can't really see their way out of the situation they're in but need some advice and help and a plan to get themselves
0: into a better place. I think that right there that you get to see such a variety of the industry from day to day that would interest anyone I think. I think as farmers I don't think people like the mundane every day having to do the same thing even if Technically, if you're milking cows every single day, there's probably uh, challenges and changes throughout the day and throughout different seasons that people are ready to take on head first. And uh, no day is the same. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, when you are consulting with farmers and whether you know it's a sheep farmer, a dairy farmer, all of the things... Through the variety of people that you meet with um, and connect with, how would you say, how progressive are the farmers that you are meeting with? I think that is probably the easiest way for me to ask you. How progressive are they? Are they doing it the same way that their grandfather did and their great-grandfather did? Or are people open to change? Are they open to new ideas?
1: There's a variety. So a lot of the farmers that I deal with would be really progressive. They'd be so we're mostly grass-based systems. So when it comes to technology, you know things are things are quite simple. So you're looking at fairly simple parlors, as little machinery as possible. So we wouldn't say like we're not. I'm not dealing with like cutting-edge technology every day, but really progressive in terms of ideas, open to new suggestions, lots of sharing information within farmer groups, but also going to conferences, reading articles, learning, um, and always like questioning what they're doing and trying to do better the industry as a whole is you know it's really different it's because the whole spectrum from people who are always trying the newest thing and always pushing themselves through to people who are you know really traditional and running farms you know very much like their grandfathers did and uh, obviously they've got tractors and there's a certain amount of computer work that has to be done now, whether you do it or whether you're getting somebody else to do that for you. But there would be some people who are really traditional. I wouldn't necessarily work with them day to day because they're not necessarily the sort of people that engage with consultancy. But I might go out and take some soil samples for a sheep farmer where it is, yeah, like a really traditional hill farm in Wales where if you kind of take out the really obvious modern bits, a lot of what's going on is is very similar to what was happening 50 years ago with breeds and management
0: and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and like like we said, there's just such a variety. And for me, like I had said to you before we started recording, I, I'm relatively newer to this industry. I didn't grow up in the industry. I, you know, found my partner and married him and dove headfirst into this industry. And I've never come across anyone where I've thought they've been farming wrong. Yeah, <laughs> They just do it differently. And, you know, the same can be true from country to country. The way that we run our systems here might not work for, for the UK and vice versa. So I'm also curious to know, I have my whole list of questions, Anna, and I've just been like going back and forth on all of them because I'm so excited to talk to somebody who does it differently in a different country. So uh, in Canada, um, as you know, we have the quota system for our dairy industry. Uh, What does the dairy industry in the UK look like? Um, Comparatively speaking to Canada's quota system and to, let's say, what the US does.
1: So when I I came out to Canada last May and met a couple of dairy farmers and you've got the quota system so in the uk it's like it's yeah it's really different there was a quota system at some at one point i can't remember when i can't remember quotas but they did they did exist here certainly not within like my professional life so milk contracts here there's probably i'd say two predominant types of milk contracts so what we call like a liquid milk contract and a solids milk contract so a liquid milk contract you will need to meet meet certain levels of like, hygiene you'd need to meet certain fat and protein percentages but once you hit those percentages you've generally got one milk price which will change through the year as like, supply and demand changes and the market changes but you're paid really on the output of milk you have so on the litres of milk you have and then there's what we have is just solids contract so generally you're selling to companies that make cheese and we are Again, there's a standard. There's a standard milk price which is set for a standard fat and protein percentage and for reaching you know, specific levels of hygiene and cleanliness. But we, the higher the fat and protein we produce, the more we get paid per liter. So the, the focus for us is on producing high fat and protein milk of you know good cleanliness, um, rather than pumping out lots and lots of liters per cow. So we'd rather. Slightly fewer liters and higher milk solids than just getting to really high liters. and that dictates the kind of a breed of cows you have as well. So solids contract. you tend to have a smaller cow with more jerseys. But yeah, the milk market in the UK so there's lots of different buyers. So we sell to a cheese um, a cheese processor. They make the cheese in North Wales, but it's well, the company was Irish. the company's now been brought by an American um so an, an American companys so now bought them out. Then there's other people who would be on um, like liquid milk contracts, so milk that goes into bottling to be, you know, to be drank. Yes, yeah, so there's lots of different milk processors, and there's some who cover the whole country. So Arla is the biggest milk buyer in the UK. They're a Danish company, and they also buy lots of milk in continental Europe. But then there'd also be quite a localized ones. So somebody. Uh, like long clawson who makes stilton cheese that they they can only buy milk from a restricted geographical area to make stilton cheese so that's quite localized and there'd be also there'd be, there'd be smaller companies that are localized as well so there's lots of variety so you see overall trends in milk price which come to like market pressures and supply and demand of milk but there's also quite a lot of variability between companies just based on what what's going on with them at the time
0: so how does that affect let's say, herd sizes for farmers in the UK? Are they very conscious of their output, of how much they're producing, if they're producing too much, number of cattle? What does that look like for you?
1: Uh, Yes, I guess, yeah, because coming back to your quota, you're restricted on, on the number of cows you'd have or on the volume of milk you'd produce. Yeah, so precious on herd size in the UK would be more to do with, I guess, land availability and infrastructure. So you'd be to so how much land you've got and how much cows you can hold there. There'd be some impact of milk contract. So um trying to think how if there's any kind of comparables, but for example, like we've, we we milk three hundred cows, that fits for kind of where we want to be, what what our sub-end of year figures need to look like. It also fits the land. So Wales has just going into some quite strict nutrient nutrient rules. So not not necessarily strict as they've what they've got in the Netherlands, but it does restrict the stocking rate on your farm. So we actually couldn't have more than three hundred cows now. Like practically, we could because we could import feed and we could have a higher stocking rate. But because of those regulations, we'd we'd be capped about at about three hundred cows. So that restricts it. Things and then infrastructure, so like the number of cubicles you've got so the number of I think what the word is you don't use cubicles in canada but the, so the size of the cattle sheds you've got the storage the slurry the size of your parlour those things would cap it as well and like the, you know, the price of buying cows as well uh, would also would also impact on it milk contract can impact things like your calving pattern so we tend to see like a, flu- a spring flush in the uk so when the all well, like when the housed cows go outside most the majority of herds in the uk would be housed over the winter there's not many places in the country where you'd be able to keep milking cows out all year round. But as the cows go out of shed in the winter, there's a generally a, an increase in milk supply. And then also when the spring block carvers like myself, when we start carving and we get to peak, there's a, there's a spring flush then. So a lot of milk companies want a level supply of milk all year round to help with their processing. So some of them wouldn't take on a new spring block carving herd but they would take you on if you were all year round carving or autumn carving. so that does mean that some people getting into dairying um, this uh, the system of farming they have is uh, we we'll wouldn't say restricted by but it's influenced by the milk processors that will pick up milk from their farm so they might go to have a spring and an autumn block because the milk buyer wouldn't take just a spring carving herd that sort of thing so that's yeah, it's, it is it's very different to your quota system in terms of pricing and the restrictions on you as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, all I know is that I feel like dairy farmers are probably the hardest working farmers uh, out of all of us. They would agree, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> those cows have to be milked twice a day, every day. They don't take a holiday. So... <laughs> No matter what country I think you're in. I don't think cows take a holiday. So (laughs) (laughs) you had mentioned something before about the contract farming that you and your partner do. I had read a little bit about your contract farming through um, your website and the articles that you've written. Tell us more about it and uh, how that works for your farm.
1: Yeah, so we're in a contract farming agreement. So if anybody's been out to New Zealand and knows about their share farming system, it's kind of quite similar to that. It's not as widespread in the UK, but we do see like more and more contract farming agreements coming around every year. And it's also established in the arable sector here. So what it effectively means is that as I, I don't like to use the term new entrants for me because I came from a dairy farm. So I'm not necessarily a new entrant, but I'm a new dairy farmer in that I haven't inherited a family farm or business. What contract farming has allowed us to do is to get started on dairy farming with you know a fraction of the capital that you'd need to take on a tenancy or to buy a farm. So the farm that we're on is owned by somebody else. They so own the farm, so they supply the land, they supply the infrastructure, and they also own all but two of the cows. And then we run a separate limited company, which is contracted in to manage the farm for them so there's a bank account, which the farm owners own. And the milk, the milk check goes into that. Any sort of cattle sales go into that. And then like your variable and your overhead costs for running the farm come out of that. So fertilizer, feed, electricity, all that sort of stuff. That account also pays us a monthly fee. And that's for us to run all the labour and machinery on the farm. So we employ all the staff we actually own all the machinery and then we cover like fuel costs machinery repairs and any contracting costs so we don't do our own silage for example we 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 pay somebody to come in and do that and the monthly fee that we're paid covers that and then we get a return on capital payment for the machinery we use on the farm and the farm owners get a per acre payment for the land they supply and they get a 10% return on the cattle and the infrastructure they supply and then at the end of the year, the profit um, gets split between us and the farm owners. And the the idea is that the contractor gets the bigger share of a profit because we're the ones who are effectively managing the farm, but we're kind of encouraged and that like, we want to reinvest that money into the farm. So when we got here, we bought half the machinery on the farm. And since then, we sort of reinvested our profit or our share of a the profit then to buy the rest of the machinery so it tends to work that you start off with the machine buying the machinery then you start buying cows and then in some some agreements you might then start buying land depending on what the farm owner wants um, you know that's kind of up to them and there's different ways to structure the agreements but that that's the way ours is structured and that's a fairly fairly standard contract farming agreement
0: yeah and when you're talking about it being a truly a new farmer that seems to be logically one of the only ways that you can get into farming and be a farm owner and i know here in canada like land prices and the cost of equipment and all of those things it is unfathomable to me of how somebody could just walk off the street and be like i am going to be a farmer and i am going to own a farm and i'm going to have cows and i'm going to have land i'm going to have irrigation all of those things like that doesn't happen anymore. So this is a way that somebody can have ownership over the farm and ownership over, you know, what they're doing. I was, I was part of a, a conference this past winter, and one of the speakers, um, one of the points that he made, for some reason in the last 20 years, the word farm laborer has become a dirty word or a job that's not sexy. Uh, people want to be farmers. They want to have ownership in things. And I don't blame them, you know, backbreaking labor to produce food. It's, it's a long, it's a long day at the end of the day when you go home and, you know, if people want to feel that ownership, they want to have their say in things and they want to be a part of something. Like contract farming seems like a great way that it's beneficial to both the farm owner and the labourer who wants to have something more.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really good. And I think a lot of the focus on the UK in terms of new entrants has always been on people getting tenancies and people owning farms. And I think for, for systems that are less um, capital intense, so things like you know, sheep farming, becoming a tenant farmer, is achievable. It's, it's achievable for quite young people. Once you've got the sheep you know, sheep and a quad bike is really kind of what a lot of systems, that's all they need. But for dairy farming, even getting into a tenancy, you need a huge amount of capital. Like, you A know, hundred cows is at least £100,000 to buy. Then there's the basic machinery you need on the farm. There's having cash in the bank to cover you until your first milk check comes in. There's a huge amount of capital needed to get started in tenant farming without without even thinking about owning a farm. So contract farming does let you get in on, you know, much, you know, you need far fewer savings to get into it. But I think one of the things as well is that, you know, being a farm manager, which is what my partner did before we went contract farming, it's is a really good career. Like it's a really good career here in the UK at least. It's well paid and because you are employed, you've got holidays and sick pay and all that stuff as well. So Yeah, I think sometimes we maybe need to stop thinking so much as land ownership being the end goal. And it's maybe it's probably easier in the UK as well, because if you're setting up a dairy farm, you don't have to go out and buy quota, which obviously you've got, which really struck me as a real barrier to the new entrance. But land is expensive, buildings are expensive, cows are expensive. And yeah, there's other ways to make it your career, which you don't need that lump sum of cash behind you and they can be really rewarding and yeah, we know. Certainly, we, I know one contract farmer who has now bought their own farm off the back of doing it. So, it is a way to climb the ladder, and it's it's worked really well in New Zealand. It's really established out there. So, just bringing it to the UK and sort of getting it to work here is
0: yeah, it's really exciting. Well, and and you said it beautifully. Land ownership doesn't need to be the end goal. I think in agriculture, I think the end goal is, you know, having a career that feels rewarding to you. And whether that's, you know, being the landowner or whether that's being an agronomist or a consultant or, you know, the farm manager, like all of these things can be rewarding and it's just figuring out what your end goal is and what you want to be doing. So I want to jump into something that, you know, relatively in the last couple of years has, has taken a big chunk of your time and that's your, you uh, started your Nuffield, Scott, scholarship in 2021 so tell us for those who don't know what the Nuffield scholarship is start there what is it and uh, how did you come about it and receiving that scholarship?
1: So Nuffield scholarship so they started off in the UK but there's now there's lots of different countries around the world um, that offer them and there's also Nuffield International which picks up scholars from countries that don't necessarily have their own sort of Nuffield organization so it's a travel scholarship for people working in agriculture. So lots of practical farmers, but also depending on the country, there might also be people working in allied industries. And it's usually, at least for COVID, um, it was a two-year two year scholarship. So you got the scholarship and two years later, you presented a report on what you'd been at and you'd been learning. So you put in an application with a subject, with a, specific area of agriculture, a specific topic you want to learn more about um, and study. And then depending on the country, it's normally um, eight weeks of independent travel and also a two-week conference where all the scholars from all over the world meet up at the beginning of the beginning of the process. And some scholars in some countries will also do what's called a global focus programme. So they travel, I think it's for six weeks, they travel as a group um, all over the world. They go to lots of different countries and that's kind of organized for you. So you go on specific visits on specific days, whereas your independent travel is kind of up to you, up to you to put together. And yeah, it's 20 so in the UK, there are 20 Nuffield scholars every year, roughly 20, not always exactly that number, but around that number. And I got, so I was given a scholarship in 2020, in October, 2020. I'm a 21 scholar and Uh, Yeah, it's been extended. My scholarship's been extended because of COVID. So I should have presented last November, but it took a while to be able to travel at all. So I will actually be presenting it this November. I've finished my eight weeks of travel. So I'm now in the process of writing up my report. And what was your topic uh,
0: that you are presenting on?
1: So my topic for Working title is Can the UK Improve the Ethics of Its Dairy Calf Management Whilst Retaining Profitability? So, looking at, I guess, three or four key areas. So, starting off with how the industry can use sex semen to reduce the number of dairy bull calves born, and then how you can find markets for dairy bull calves, but more more so for dairy beef calves, because obviously the use of sex semen means that. Dairy bull calf numbers are, you know, falling all the time. So, how can you market dairy beef into the beef sector to produce good calves in terms of genetics and management that fit the specifications of the red meat sector? I also looked at cow-calf contact systems. So, is it feasible to keep dairy cows and calves together? Um, because that's one of the big challenges I think the dairy industry has now, especially as so many countries around the world have banned um, euthanasia of healthy calves. So that. That's not, although it's got challenges in terms of how to manage dairy beef calves, the euthanasia bit is, is isn't isn't happening. It's not allowed to happen in so many parts of the world now. And then I also looked at lessons the dairy industry can learn from the racing industry um, in terms of maintaining social licence.
0: What have been some of your biggest takeaways from your time studying?
1: So I started off by going to Denmark, and they have just completely, I'd say, like nailed the whole dairy beef system like they've got a fantastic system in terms of carbs from the dairy herd entering the beef sector being raised and producing a, a meat product in Denmark that consumers want to buy and they just their whole system is brilliant and they've also got really great use of sexed semen really great use of genetics for producing beef from the dairy herd and just the whole supply chain there is integrated and linked up and it's fantastic so that was my first trip, but I sort of left it and I was like, well, this is this is the answer. It's here in Denmark. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the other really great takeaways have been around keeping cows and calves together. So I've seen that sort of system now all over the world um, on very different scales and seen it work really well in different systems as well. And I think I saw it a lot of it in Scandinavia on quite small herds, which were mostly completely housed with summer turnout robots. And as looking at it and going, these types of systems, they work, but they also work because in Scandinavia, they have got lots and lots of robot herds. Norway's got a quota system like Canada. So the I think the average herd size in Norway is about 30 cows. So it's really small. Uh, but then in January, I went out to New Zealand and I met a farmer there who is doing it on a standard milk contract. So he's not getting paid any extra for keeping the cows and calves together and he runs an extensive grazing system like we do here, um, and he was making it work. And the cows, were, you know, were walking quite far. They were in a normal parlour, and that was that was the kind of the visit. That was like this is this is brilliant because this shows that it can it can work. It's just a, type, a case of like how you kind of adapt your infrastructure and stuff. So those were the two probably the two like really great mess, like the great visits in terms
0: of actually finding solutions to to the questions I was asking. Right. Well, and like you said, knowing that these ideas actually are working other places and now how do you bring those ideas back and adapt your current infrastructure, your current um, where you live and how your cows are treated and all of these things. There's just so many different ways of doing, like I said, there's so many different ways of doing things and I don't really think there's uh, you know, necessarily a wrong way of doing a lot of these systems and processes, but it's just how do you adapt and how do you make that feasible for your own operation? Yeah. So do you have any upcoming travel left or have you done your extensive travel for your scholarship?
1: Yeah, I think I'm finished. So I've done the eight weeks and I was yeah I was travelling for three weeks back in January. I went to Australia, New Zealand, and um the United Arab Emirates. And there is a there's a thousand cow herd in Germany that keeps the cows and calves together. And they've also got a milk contract in Germany which offers a premium for milk from cow calf contact herds. Part of me would really like to go out and see them. But I think at some point you've got to sort of just draw a line and say, that's you know that's enough. like I've seen what I need to see. So, I have said that i'm I'm finished. I think now that I'm trying to write the report and the report's due in June, we are still carving, and then we're about to start breeding, so it's quite difficult to get away from the farm at this time of year anyway, so yeah, I think I am done this uh, it's really hard, so I don't think you're ever properly finished like there's always something else you could go and see and see in in the space of two years there's lots of change in the industry as well. So lots of people have started doing things and changing things. So I guess you could keep traveling forever, but I've had to just draw a line and say, no, I'm, I'm finished now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone listening who either has never heard of Nuffield or is interested about learning more or seeing how they can get involved, where do you suggest that they go and what do they do? Yeah, so
1: I'm guessing most of your listeners are probably in North America. So I should say that Canada has got a, its own Nuffield organisation. So if you Google Nuffield Canada, you'll you'll find reports from previous scholars and probably the information on how to apply as well, if that's what you're interested in. In the US, then uh, there are American scholars who do it through Nuffield International. So we look up Nuffield International and you'll get an idea of, um, of the application process there. And Nuffield International will probably link through to different scholar reports from around the world as well. So there's like an online database, so you can search by you can search by scholar to find a specific report. But if you're also interested in like a particular topic, you could just put in like regenerative agriculture or dairy farming or something like that, and it'll it'll pull up reports that are about those
0: topics. And there's lots and lots of them. Very cool. It's such an interesting organization, and I just think that uh, the more information that we have from other parts of the world, I think the better that we can all do at home with wherever your home is. so yeah, yeah Anna, what is what is next for you? What are you working on besides writing your report? That's almost you. What's next for you?
1: What is next for me? So yeah, my report's due in a couple of months, and then I've got to present at the conference in November. So I've not really been thinking too far ahead of that. so yeah, I just I started a new so I started working for a new consultancy firm last year, So I'm still in the process of kind of developing a client base and and making that all work. And yeah, the, far, I mean, the farm in the firm is just it rolls around, so there's always something new happening which needs to be addressed. So, yeah, I haven't got any real concrete career like career plans in terms of Nuffield and stuff afterwards. It's just finish the Nuffield present hoping that that will bring kind of opportunities to maybe help people who are looking to get into different systems of farming and, and help them out yeah I think that's it I've trying not to I did say that when I finished my Nuffield I wanted to run a marathon so I might do that next year I might do that next year maybe
0: <laughs> well you've said it out loud now yeah, so there has I to have, be yeah. some merit to that right <laughs> <laughs> Anna it has been absolutely lovely chatting with you today. And uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. The last question I have for you is what is the most rewarding part about being a rural woman for you?
1: Oh, you know, I think it's working with animals. So for me, it always comes back to animals. I guess they're at the core of like, my Nuffield topic. And it's why I've not really had any interest in going down consultancy and, you know, like combinable crops or anything. So yeah, for me, working with animals like on on our farm, it's seeing you know calves growing up, becoming heifers, entering the herd, their daughters and their granddaughters coming up behind them like that's brilliant. And then from a broader perspective, like I really enjoy the work I do, where it helps animal welfare, helps ethics, um, seeing farmers seeing farmers thrive and have brilliant businesses up that, that they find rewarding. It's great, um, but it's also knowing that sometimes that interventions you've made or suggestions you've made are making lives of their animals better and yeah I think that I think that's it it's working of animals helping animals seeing them in the wider landscape and yeah I think the variety is also really rewarding so no days no days the same and you're going to be outside you're going to be inside it's yeah it's brilliant like I'm really really grateful for working in agriculture and also for the opportunities agriculture has given me to me travel and to do lots of different things it's it's a really brilliant industry to be part of and I'd, I'd like it if more people knew about the opportunities that that existed for them and that you know even if you don't want to be a practical farmer there's so many different things you can use your skills for in the industry
0: yeah for sure there's it's it's a broad field yeah, Unintended. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anna for those listening who would like to connect with you after the show where can they find you online? Yeah, so I've got a
1: website, it's annabowenmedia.com and on that you can actually sign up to get posts I write come through into your inbox and I'm mostly on Instagram and it's
0: anna.writes.farms.rides. Perfect, and we will link all of those in the show notes and we will be waiting to uh, to hear more about your Nuffield presentation and all of the good things that are coming from you and that marathon, Anna. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you again so much for coming on and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor, Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim & Co Online. Special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munben from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at the Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story.